heroes is a political pundit, the columnist Charles Krauthammer. Uh, he announced on June the 8th that the doctors had given him only a few weeks to live. In my, uh, in my private prayers, I've been praying for the salvation of that good Jewish man. And um, I know, uh, are Phil and Susie here? Yeah, right there. Uh, their son, Matthew, I believe it's Matthew, is good friends with Charles Krauthammer's son, Daniel. And uh, uh, at any rate, uh, this is a very, uh, this is a man for whom many people have been praying. And uh, this past Thursday, just a week and a half after the announcement, he died. No idea about his soul. God knows. Uh, we have no idea who spoke with him. But these days, I have been thinking more and more about Paul's heart for this community that he grew up in, the Jews. Of course, we read earlier that the gospel in 116 is, is, is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we see that pattern played out throughout the book of Acts. It goes immediately to the synagogues and then to the agar or the marketplace after that. Um, but you see this in Romans 9. Look at verses 1 to 3 of Romans 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then you come to chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You know, you see this so Clearly, this is the community Paul grew up in, God's chosen people, a nation who, if you look at the world today, whose survival is unexplainable in human terms, other than supernatural terms, that God has a plan for Israel that is yet to unfold. You can read more about that in Romans 11, and we will. Or you can look at the book of Revelation and look and see how, how strange this is that Israel is back in its land after all these centuries and there are hostile nations all around it. And that is the catalyst that sparks the second coming of Christ. Who knew? Well, that's exactly what we see today except Israel is not in the land in belief. They're not operating by the faith principle now. Don't stop praying. It's not Israel right or wrong. It's God's plan, which is right. And that is what will unfold for us. That is the historical context for our text in Romans chapter 9. We said last week that there are three contrasts in this text. The first contrast was actually in chapter 9, verses 30 to 33, the contrast between Israel and the law on the one hand and the Gentiles and faith, on the other hand, we explored that last week. We explored the second contrast last week, which is in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. And that is that zeal without knowledge is contrasted with zeal with knowledge. And that knowledge is of the faith principle of belief in Jesus. That was in verses 1 to 4. Today, we're going to be looking at the third contrast, the righteousness 
which is based on the law on the one hand, as opposed to the righteousness based on faith. And this is going to be in chapter 10, verses 5, and we're going to extend it through to verse 13 today. So what I'm going to do today is I am going to begin with what I'm going to end with. And I want to teach you something in the way that we taught our children. Okay? And here's the memory verse. Okay? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that's a crown, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Stand up. <laughs> Put your devices or your Bibles down. <laughs> Get your hands free. Okay? This is aerobic worship. Okay? And you just, just watch me one more time. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Okay? Let's say it together. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. All right, one more time. You are really good. Bible scholars all over the room. Ready? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Okay, have a seat. <laughs> That's the way we, we use the using hand gestures and helps with the memory verses, I think. So at any rate, that's what, we, that's what we're going to begin, what we're going to end with at the end of the, of the message. We're going to have an audience response. And we're going to try that one more time. One of the familiar courses that, courses that I think all of us have heard over the years is, He is Lord, He is Lord, He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord. That, that chorus is based on Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Let me just read. For this reason also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that is Paul's whole, whole point here in Romans chapter 10. And really has been his whole point all the way through the book of Romans. Exactly what does it mean to say Jesus Christ is Lord? What did it mean to a Jew? What did it mean to a Roman? Since Paul is writing to the Romans. So we're, we're going to look at the confession, Jesus is Lord, through both Jewish and Roman lenses. And, and there's a lot of really good stuff to be gained from looking through both lenses because both were intended by the Apostle Paul. We're going to begin by looking at the confession Jesus is Lord through the lens of the Jews, and, and it's through that lens that we're actually going to look at the whole passage. And then after we look at the passage, we're going to come back and say, okay, yes, but there are some things to observe here about looking at Jesus as Lord through the lens of the Gentiles, through the Romans. And we're going to make a few comments about that after we go through this passage. So first... The Jewish lens. We're gonna, uh, uh, Jesus is Lord. 
in these words, the Apostle Paul reinforces the truth that was well known to the readers at Rome, and that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation, beginning with the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Strange, a seed of a woman who is going to crush Satan and so forth. So here in, in Romans 10, verses 5 through 11, he cites several Old Testament texts, and he's going to bring in some more all the way down to verse 13. And, and remember, even though he is using Jewish scriptures, the scriptures of the Jews now become the word of God for any Christian, for the Roman Christians too. And, and all the way through, when Paul's writing to Gentiles, he's teaching them the Old Testament because now it's the word of God to them as well. So in verse 5, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. That's Romans 10, 5. Moses writes, where does he write that? He writes that in Leviticus 18. And the point that he's making from Leviticus 18 is if you're going to keep the law as a way to be saved, you have to keep it perfectly. This is an allusion to Leviticus 18, and I'm, I'm going to read the Leviticus 18 passage. We're not going to turn there, but just listen to this. He begins by using the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh, which is the, translated into the Bible by capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Yahweh. So that, I mean, that is the meaning for a Jew. So he begins in Leviticus 18 by saying, I am Yahweh, Lord, the Lord, your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. So he begins and ends by saying, I am the Lord. You hear those bookends there. So the Lord says you must actually keep, keep entirely. There's no exceptions given here. The law of Moses. James who was the earthly brother of Jesus and became the leader of the Jerusalem church, put it this way in James chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Paul's argument throughout, I mean, from Romans 3, Romans 4, Jesus' argument throughout his ministry is that the idea of a sinful human being keeping the law of God perfectly is a hypothetical it is never an actual. It is always and always will remain a hypothetical. Why? Because no one can. No one. Now, speaking of Moses, Paul points back in verses 6 and 7, and really in verse 8 as well, <clears throat> to the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to this. Verse, verse 6, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, or the deep, the sea, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. Now, these verses are actually from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I'm going to turn over there and read uh, from those verses. And... Uh, I want you to listen to this because you may have some questions like, huh? 
For this is this commandment, which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it uh, for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you would say, who will cross the sea or the abyss for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Now. It, when you hear that and you look at Romans 10, how in the world does Paul's point relate to the context in Deuteronomy? Uh, because you, you'll notice that Paul omits that you may observe it, that you may observe it, that you may observe it. He missed, occurs three times. He omits all three of them. Why? Because he's already made the point that the hypothetical will never become the actual. You can never do it. That was the whole point. So how does... Paul's point relate to the context in Deuteronomy. One of my friends is an Old Testament scholar, and he asked me what we were preaching on at the church, and when I said Romans, of all possible questions he could have asked me, he asked, how do you interpret the Old Testament quotes in Romans 10? He said they seem to have no connection to their Old Testament context. And he was talking about verses 6 through 8, really 6 and 7 mostly. So I for a minute here, I'm going to call a timeout. This is a timeout, okay? I want to say a word about how to interpret the Old Testament in the New Testament. And, and I'm going to be painting with a broad brush, so please understand that. But first, it's, it's almost always the case that deeper truth is embedded in the Scriptures than what we immediately see. This is absolutely clear throughout the prophets. The human authors of Scripture often spoke better than they themselves knew at the time. I love the way that, uh, that uh, Peter describes it, how he, he mentions that when the, when the Scripture is being written, the Holy Spirit bore along the writers of Scripture. And the, the Greek word for bore along is the same word that's used in Acts 27 to describe the shipwreck of Paul when they were on this ship the men were on, the sailors were on the deck of the ship, but the ship was being borne along by the wind and, and the waves. Uh, and it speaks about how the ship was being borne along by the wind. By the way, the word for spirit and the word for wind are the same Greek word. So the Holy Spirit bore along the human writers of Scripture. Were the sailors in a trance? No. They were active. Their personalities were present. And in the same way, that is on that ship. I'm jumping back and forth. I know. In the same way, the human writers of Scripture, uh, you can see their personalities through the texts of Scripture. Uh, they're not, you know, being, they're, they're not in a trance being, you know, writing like that. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit is the one who's bearing them along so that when they lift pen from paper, what, the, what is on that paper is what God intended for us to have. So, Yes, the point, all I'm saying is the human authors of Scripture often spoke better than they knew at the time. Okay. Having said that, sometimes commentators just agonize over torturous explanations, trying to shoehorn an explanation to make passages fit together when there may be a simpler way to think about it. And, and just, I want to suggest four possible categories 
into, into which Old Testament references that we find in the New Testament may fit. And these are, I listed these in your bulletin notes. And I'm just going to go over this and then I'm going to move back into the text. So this is the free part of the sermon. And op, the first is option one. That what you have here is an exact Old Testament quote. This is that. This is very common. This is usually what is meant in the New Testament. And when it says things like, as Isaiah said, or as that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, and he just quotes it, there it is. There is a quote. No problem, it brings us context with it. It's all right there. Second option is, sometimes when the Old Testament is referenced, it's a paraphrase instead of a quote. It's, this is that, so both of them are this is that, but with a paraphrase, it may be in different words, but similar words. The meaning is the same, but not necessarily the same wording. You find this, uh, for example, in the book of Hebrews. You find it in some references in the Gospels. But here's the difference between the two. When you've got a quote, uh, here's a quote. Lewis said, I'll be here next week. And here's my paraphrase. Lewis told me he was returning next week and he'll be here Sunday. So Lewis told me, Lewis said, quote, it's not a problem. It's the same thing. Now, here's, here's the deal. Far and away, the majority of the Old Testament references in the New Testament are in those first two categories. Far and away. That's where you're going to find the majority of them. Easy. Here's the third category, an illusion. It's not this is that, but more like this is like that. This here and that over there fall into a similar pattern of truth. It's not fulfillment of the Old Testament passage as much as an analogy drawn from one text to another to illustrate how God works. This is God's pattern of truth. Look at these things, how they match up in this unfolding of God, the ways, the patterns in which God works. I love finding this. But it's not a quote. It's an illusion. And then the fourth category is is a, a language form. And I don't have a label for this. I try to come up with a clever description of it. So I just put language form because I thought that was elegant and communicated well, right? Here's, there, there's not necessarily any connection at all except the fact that the writers of the New Testament are steeped in the language of the Old Testament. They're just steeped in it. When I... Not long ago, I teased one of the young single men in our church about a certain group of young ladies, and I mentioned the fields are white unto harvest. Yeah, he didn't think it was that funny either. <laughs> How about this one? Now, it, was there any connection between those references? No. Just the, langu just the language, words came to my mind. Uh, like yesterday in the hall, and Havala, is Havala here? I apologize to you, but I saw Havala in the hall yesterday, and I said, oh, the time is accomplished that she should be delivered. <laughs> now, was there any connection to that with the Old Testament passage? No, not, not at all. It's just, okay. Um, so, maybe even closer, this would be when someone prays in King James language. Have you ever heard someone do that? 
you know, this, this is just such a common thing where um, uh, well, I had a, a gentleman that I taught with for many years, and whenever he prayed, he was just, everything was normal, but when he prayed, he lapsed into these and those and those, and he would string together quotations of Scripture that weren't necessarily connected, but, but they were a part of the flow of his, of his prayer. And uh, that's simply because he was so steeped in that language, in that translation when he grew up, that the thought forms of, of that language just emerged. Does that make sense? So, all right. Um, so sometimes when you see Old Testament references in the New, it may just be the similarity in the thought forms. And I think what we have here is the third category, an illusion into Deuteronomy 30. I'll explain that in just a moment. But there's one more thing I want to mention. Another part of the problem of the quote of knowing what we have. I mean, why doesn't it say, okay, quotation, paraphrase, illusion, thought form. Why, why don't they label it like that? Well, the mechanics of printing Bibles isn't flex, flexible enough or to, to make it simple enough to indicate when you have a paraphrase or an illusion instead of a quotation. For example, in the New American Standard, if you put, what they do is, the New American Standard, which I'm using, they put the quotations from the Old Testament in capital letters. But they also put paraphrases in capital letters. And sometimes I'm not sure it, which they are doing, um, even when it's not a direct quote. But if they don't do that, then there's no way for the reader to know, oh, this is a reference from the Old Testament, if they don't do that. So that... You know, they're, they're kind of hamstrung by the, by the mechanics of printing a Bible. All to say, Paul points to the passage in Deuteronomy as a means of communicating the point that he's making in Romans 10, 6, and 7. And he takes these verses from Deuteronomy and applies them to Christ. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. He adds that. And the point is, the Messiah, Jesus, already came down. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. I mean, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would suffer and die. And his point here is, the Messiah, Jesus, has already risen from the dead. In other words, it is finished. And now just one option remains that's in verse 14, which is to believe, and, it, and, and that is Deuteronomy 30, 14. Here it is in verse 8. But what does it say? That is, what does Deuteronomy say? The Old Testament scripture showing throughout the centuries the faith principle. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we're preaching. So waiting for somebody to ascend to heaven... Or somebody to descend into hell to bring salvation, that's over. That's Jesus has been there, done that. It's finished. And here is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation by grace through faith. Verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person can, believes, Resulting in righteousness, that is, God, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, now listen to this, 
Whoever. It's universal. Whoever believes. It's the faith principle. Whoever believes in him, Jesus as Lord, will not be disappointed. So Paul here repeats an exact quotation from Isaiah 28. Uh, verse 16, direct quotation implies that from Isaiah to the Romans and to us. A couple of points I want to make about these verses. Why is confess before believe when belief logically comes before confession? The answer is the order in Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, is mouth and heart. That's Moses' order. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. So, Confess with your mouth is before believe in your heart in that quotation. But you really cannot separate the two, can you? Because what the heart believes, the mouth confesses. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Two sides, same coin. That's not a problem. But secondly, notice here, the confession, Jesus is Lord. And I want you to nail this down. This is a confession faith. This is not a statement about personal sanctification. I want Jesus to have lordship over my life. That kind of lordship takes your whole life. That's a lifetime endeavor. That's not what this is about. This is about Jesus as Yahweh in the Old Testament. This is not about sanctification. This is about identity. Who is Jesus? Precisely the question that Jesus asked the disciples in Matthew 16. Who do people say that I am? And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. So verse 11 says, whoever believes the faith principle in him, Jesus is Lord, will not be disappointed. That whoever means whoever, Jew and Gentile. As verse 12 continues, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So it comes down to this. For a Jew, Jesus is Lord means Jesus is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. The most common name for God in the Old Testament. For a Roman... Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is God, not of the Roman pantheon, and certainly not the emperor Caesar Nero. We're going to talk about what it means for Roman in just a moment. But both confessions for both Jew and Roman or Gentile end in the same place. And with both confessions, you're saved from your sins in the same way, for there is no distinction. You're saved by faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, we've gone through these verses and we had some comments about the Old Testament text that Paul refers to. But there's one in particular that I want to mention. I want you 
to, to notice verse 13 again. Verse, notice in verse 13. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to be heading there. The prophet Joel is quoted in verse 13. The prophet Joel is a pre-exilic prophet who warned about God's future judgment against the kingdom of Judah. And here's, here's kind of what Joel was about. The occasion for the book of Joel was a locust plague, which devastated the region. Now, a locust plague, as we could say, is a judgment from creation. Okay? It's, it's a natural disaster. And what, what, what Joel said was, look around you. Look around. This judgment of the locust plague is nothing compared to a greater judgment that is yet to come. And that judgment is going to be not from the creation, but from the creator. Look ahead, because that is coming, this far greater judgment. And that greater judgment was the Babylonian captivity. So look ahead. But that's not all. Then beyond that was the greatest judgment that will be brought by the Lord himself, Yahweh. The Lord. In the day of the Lord, when he will come back and judge everything and put everything right. And that judgment will usher in the eternal restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. So look around, look ahead, look above, because there is also salvation. Now, here's the deal. Peter quotes Joel 2 in his sermon, in this very same text, in his sermon at Pentecost. Because Jesus has ascended, and that's when the end times began. When Jesus ascended, at any point from, that on, from then on, he could have returned, and still can. He's up, he's gone to, to the right hand of the Father, he intercedes for us, and he will return at any time. So that, the ascension of Jesus began a new thing. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter, the apostle to the Jews, quotes Joel. And he quotes this very verse and says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is Peter quoting? Joel. Joel 2.32. That's um, in, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 21. And then in Acts 2, 26, Peter says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, that's the day of Pentecost. So I hope you're, it's kind of hard to follow this. But Joel says, there is coming this day of the Lord. And I want you to know that up until that point, until it's too late, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter quotes that to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul writes to the Roman Gentiles. In verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Same verse. Believe in the Lord. And then by the way, later on, to the church at Philippi, which is a Roman colony, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. So what does Jesus is Lord mean? I told you I was heading here. 
for a Roman. That's what it meant for a Jew. What does it mean for a Roman, for the Gentiles? Paul's writing to the Romans, right? Well, it meant the same thing because they were absorbing the Word of God as their own scriptures, the Old Testament. As the New Testament was being added to that, it was all a part of the Word of God. It certainly didn't mean anything less than it did to the Jews. But with a Roman, something more was being added. The way that a person in the Roman Empire expressed allegiance to the emperor was to confess Kurios Kaiseros. Caesar is Lord. Kurios Kaiseros. One New Testament scholar wrote in a recent book, well, it was published in 2016, and he's got, there's, there's a lot of new information that's been discovered, and I'm going to quote what he says. The Roman emperor was hailed as Kurios, Lord, by supplicants and clients, and, and the clients, they did it for financial reasons to stay in his good graces, by supplicants and clients across the empire. At the time Paul was writing, one can find inscriptions, papyri, Ostraca, that is uh, shards of pottery, all attesting Nero is Lord. Even including the grandiose claim, quote, Nero is Lord of the entire world, end quote. The Roman emperor cult was actually kind of similar, if you want something that's a modern counterpart, to the North Korean personality cult of the Kim family, now Kim Jong-un. Anyone who disagrees with the Kims is sent to re-education camps. And estimates are 25 million people are, have been sent to re-education camps, and many of them don't return. School children are told that the Internet is a myth. Of course, they have no access to it, most of them don't have access to electricity. But what they've heard about it, it's taught in school that it's a myth. By the way, Kim Jong-un has majestic powers. He has the ability, I'm quoting, to catch a double rainbow with one hand. Why a double rainbow? I think one would be good. He also learned to drive at the age of three. This is what's taught. Um, he is a gifted artist and musician whose art and music are celebrated all over the world. Now, maybe you didn't know that. But according to North Korean propaganda for school children, that's true. His body is so perfectly calibrated. His body is so perfectly calibrated that he never needs the bathroom because he produces no waste. I really just don't know what to say about that one. When I was growing up, uh, we, we had the tall tales of the mythical Paul Bunyan and uh, the, the lumberjack. For example, the 10,000 lakes of Minnesota are his footprints. The Grand Canyon was created when he was dragging his axe behind him. Uh, and uh, when he built a campfire, the rocks are now Mount Hood. You kind of get the idea about that. Any legends you've ever heard about Paul Bunyan, supersize them 
and they apply to Kim, uh, to the Kim family. The problem is we all knew as school kids that these were, quote, tall tales. Not so in North Korea. And by the way, teachers are instructed to lead prayer-like chants in which Kim is praised for delivering our daily bread. And that is a quote. Now, that kind of emperor personality cult is exactly what the Roman emperors gradually descended into, so that by the time of Nero, it was beginning to flourish fully. And Nero was the one under whom the apostle Paul was executed. So, it was, it was incendiary for Roman Christians to confess Jesus is Lord instead of Nero is Lord. You get that? There was no freedom of speech, and, and the implications for their future was just far greater than uttering some hollow formula. If you uttered those words, you could, depending upon who is listening, you could be signing your death warrant. One more thing. This is the confession that the Apostle Paul writes to a group of house churches in the center of the Roman Empire, the capital city, Rome. In Rome, they would be declaring the lordship of a Jewish carpenter who was executed as a criminal by other Romans. So, okay, let's put it together. No Gentile could say both Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord. It was either one or the other. And the implications for your choice were huge. And no Jew would ever say Jesus is Lord, Yahweh of the Old Testament, without meaning it, because that would turn Jewish theology up on its head. This confession separated every person from all other Gentiles or from all other Jews. That is why, whether you were Jew or Gentile Roman, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is anathema, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Only those whose hearts responded to the wooing of the Holy Spirit confess Jesus is Lord. The gospel is clear. We stand condemned as sinners before a holy God. All have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation in Jesus Christ. And I wonder if there are any here who have not yet made the confession, Jesus is Lord. Are the consequences as grave for us here? No, they're not. In some ways, that's part of the problem. But is the implication of the confession as important? Yes, it makes an eternal difference. Because one day you're going to die. We all will. And one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Better to make that declaration now with joy than then with judgment. The visual reminder of the gospel is communion. It's the bread and the cup. If you've not made the confession that Jesus is Lord, if you have not made that commitment, first of all, I, I want to say I am so glad you're here, but you're about to see a visual picture of God taking the initiative when we cannot save ourselves, God entered the world 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. So this is a visual picture of what God did. And this is, a, this is the Lord's table. It's not the table of Signal Mountain Bible Church. And we invite all those who have made that confession, Jesus is Lord, to partake. If you've not made that confession, just let the elements pass on by. But think about what you're seeing. That God became flesh, represented by the bread. And, and that as flesh, the infinite God could become finite man and die on the cross, shedding his blood, represented by the cup, for our sins. I'm going to ask the men who will be serving to come forward, please. And as the elements are passed, I'm just going to ask, if there's any issue between you and the Lord where your sin needs to be confessed and you need to receive forgiveness, please just, just search your hearts. Just take this moment as they're being passed until we partake together.